I'm Tavi Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tanvi Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both in-person and virtual settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. Now, if you've been enjoying my podcast and the insights and tools I've been sharing on how you can improve your leadership craft, and you're interested in having me expand on them with your team and organization, I'd like to invite you to check out my speaking page on our website at tavinnasir.com to learn about some of the topics I can discuss at your upcoming event. And now I'd like to introduce my guest for this episode, Charles Kahn. Charles is an investor, environmentalist, and entrepreneur. He's the co-founder of Monograph, a venture firm, and is the chairman for the board of directors of Patagonia, as well as sitting on the Nature Conservancy European Council. Charles has written two books about business and leadership, and it's his latest one that I wanted to speak with him about. It's a fascinating read called The Imperfectionists, Strategic Mindsets for Uncertain Times. Hi, Charles. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. It's great to be here, Tanvir. Thanks so much. As I was reading your book, The Imperfectionists, I kept finding myself drawing parallels between what I was reading in your book and what I was seeing or hearing about what a particular organization was doing in response to some of the common challenges many organizations are grappling with today. And honestly, more often than not, they were doing the exact opposite of what you were recommend in your book. So I'm looking forward to exploring the ideas you share here, Charles. But I think before we do, I think it'll help if you could explain what do you mean by being an imperfectionist? Now, I know in your book, this doesn't mean settling for mediocrity or being good enough. And interestingly, in describing imperfection, you also make the case for why this should make people feel less worried about how expansive the impact AI can be on today's workplaces. So I'd love it if you could share some of those thoughts before we dig deeper into the ideas you share in your book. Sure. So let let me define that. And you're right. We don't at all mean accepting mediocrity or mistakes. But when the world is changing really quickly, as it is now, and when there's a lot of uncertainty, and those are two separable things, it's very easy for people to freeze up because we are taught to make strategic decisions, particularly by using these carefully thought through frameworks. And we often have a mental image like a chessboard. And you don't want to make a mistake. And I think in when the world's um, changing as quickly as it is, that isn't the right mental model. The right mental model is what I would call dynamic problem solving, where you're making small decisions, ideally ones that are relatively low consequence and are reversible, that teach you more about the game that you're playing and help build your capabilities and indeed build your confidence and sometimes teach you by failure. And that's what we mean about being an imperfectionist, to go ahead and lean into risk, to make those kind of small steps, and to learn as you bootstrap yourself forward, it's an old-fashioned kind of idea, um, rather than waiting for perfection. Another term might be experimentalist. I think that's the part of this model that really resonates with me, is that idea of experimenting, which is actually touches on one of the six different mindsets that you say is what it means to be an imperfectionist. 
And as you said, it's really about us being able to take on new information, new outlooks that will help inform and shape our understandings. And I like this phrase you used throughout your book, which is that it also helps us step into risk. Now, as I mentioned, there are six specific mindsets leaders need to employ to become better problem solvers during times of uncertainty, which is what we've all been experiencing for the last few years. And the goal here is for us to let go of trying to hold on to a sense of certainty and instead embrace risk, like as you said, not in a careless fashion, but with a measured, thoughtful, and curious outlook. And I'd like to take a bit of a different approach in discussing these from how they're presented in your book by starting with the mindset you call the dragonfly eye, which involves three sets of actions, changing the lens through which we see things, widening the aperture so we're taking into account a broader context than what we normally take in, and seeing the situation from multiple perspectives. So could you walk us through this mindset and how we go about employing these three actions especially considering our tendency during uncertain times to latch onto or do things that create certainty. Yeah. So um, we like this idea of the dragonfly eye. I mean, the truth is none of us really know how a dragonfly sees, but what we know looking at the dragonfly eye is they have some 30,000 separate lenses on those two giant compound eyes. And they have three simple lenses that are also associated with the the back of their head that allows them to see almost 360. And we know that they see a far greater range of color uh, spectrum than than we do. We use that as this analogy, which is um, before you run off and make a strategic decision, especially when times are changing quickly, to stop yourself and say, I wonder if I can see this through a different lens. So change the lens. Sometimes we say, you know, use an environmental approach, which is what would this look like from the perspective of my supplier or my competitor or a near competitor or a potential competitor? What would this look like from the perspective of um, someone else in my industry, for example, a potential hire, right? Um, I'll give you an example that I like. So one of my favorite examples is in the last 20 years, there's been a complete revolution in orthodontia, right? And the the way that happened is forever and ever. In fact, it looks like all the way back to the Egyptians, there's been this idea of braces. And those braces have always been these ugly metal things that we glue to our teeth, And then in the last 20 years, uh, a new product was developed called Invisalign. And it was developed not by someone who had training in dentistry or orthodontia, but by two Stanford students. And one of those students was wearing braces, you know, almost all the way to business school. And he noticed when he didn't wear his retainer for a few nights that, and when he tried to put it back on, that his teeth had actually moved, that his retainer actually helped to move his teeth too. And he also noticed that the retainer was much clearer and much more attractive um, than wearing these metal braces on his teeth. And that led him and his co-founder, a woman called Kelsey Worth, who's a friend of mine, to think, I wonder if we could use uh, engineering to create a set of clear um, braces or uh, uh, aligners that would allow us to move our teeth over time the same way that braces do, but without the ugly feel of braces. It turns out this is a 
very difficult thing to do. But what I want to focus on is that it was really just seeing the whole idea of moving your teeth through a different lens than the medical lens, but actually seeing it through kind of the consumer side. You know, what could we do? How could we move our teeth in a way that was attractive, that had curb appeal as opposed to not? And they've created a business that's worth $20 billion today, and it's completely upended um, the whole dentistry market because now regular dentists who haven't trained as orthodontists can also help people move their teeth. And I just, I love that they changed the lens instead of seeing it through that medical idea. So that's an example of stopping and looking at things through different perspectives rather than just the standard industry perspective. So with this in mind that it's really about understanding, like, look, it's not something unique. We can all, even if we're an established market or we've been doing certain thing a number of years, we have the opportunity to say, well, let's be like a dragonfly and look through a different lens. How do we embrace this dragon eye mindset here, Charles? What are some practical measures we could take to help us view a situation through different lenses and with a wider aperture? So first of all, I love what you said. I mean, because I think we often, when we see an idea like Invisalign, we think, oh my God, those people must be so brilliant. They've thought of something entirely different. Or you look at something like Uber and you think, oh my God, isn't that amazing? These, this, this idea of seeing things through different perspective is, av- is available to anybody. What it requires is actually stopping and paying attention. And I think organizations can do that too. So one of the things you can do is you're doing is you're getting ready to do strategy making, you know, which we used to think about as kind of five-year plans, which is a really absurd notion, um, especially today, is to start by perspective taking. So as we consider our business, whether it's incipient or in front of us, or whether it's an existing business, is to start by actually taking these perspectives. Let's take the consumer perspective when we're thinking about uh, orthodontia. Or, you know, if, if you were to think about Amazon, Amazon's now the biggest player in cloud services. Well, aren't they a retailer? Yeah, they stopped and noticed that the tools that they had developed for their their own uh, cloud cloud service for them for themselves might be actually useful to customers too. So they really just widened the aperture from something that they developed internally. All they did was stop and notice. Right. And I think you can say the same thing about the idea of using multiple lenses at the same time. So start for me, it always starts with workshops where we look at our industry or an industry that we want to enter from a bunch of different perspectives, not just from the industry standard. It's not hard to do. Now, the reason why I wanted to start with this mindset, Charles, is because I find that when you open yourself to seeing things through a different lens and widening your perspective to get more details to provide you with a more expansive context for what's going on around you. I think what you need at this point to really benefit from this mindset is tapping into the next one I want to talk to you about, and that is the mindset of being ever curious. Now, in my keynotes and workshops around my book, Leadership Vertigo, I discuss the importance of leaders embracing this innate behavior we all have of being curious and recognizing that it's not just something associated with childhood as we could see it in action in things like how so many shows now are serialized in their storytelling. They're tapping into that innate curiosity we all have, which is why binge-watching a show is a popular thing to do. But in terms of helping us become better problem solvers during uncertain times, 
what are some things leaders can do to foster curiosity when our natural instinct might be to hunker down and wait out the storm instead of sticking our heads out the window to see what's going on? Yeah, and I, I so this is a hard one, right? Because you know you said it yourself. We tend to associate curiosity with childhood, and that's because as we get older, the way we make sense of this very complicated world around us is we put pattern, we use pattern recognition to then impose patterns on everything we do, and that means we don't actually see the world the way a child sees the world, right? And you know, the one of the examples we use in the book is uh, instant photography, and the, the, the inventor of that, Edwin Land, only thought of doing instant photography in an interaction with his daughter, Jennifer. And this is back in the, in the 40s. And he took a photo with his camera and she said, Daddy, can I see the picture? And he knelt down and he explained to her how film worked and how it required going to a lab. And in two weeks, we could go to the drugstore and pick it up. And then he stopped himself and he realized that this childhood openness actually led to sort of a bolt of lightning for him. And he started to think about the chemistry of how you could do actual instant photography. So for a second, he was able to borrow the curiosity of this five-year-old, right? I think organizations can do that too, but it's it's harder than the perspective taking of Dragonfly Eye that we talked about a minute ago, because it actually requires giving people time and space to look at things like as if they were children. And most organizations focused on productivity and lean and agile, they actually don't give people any room to think. Even in a place like Google, which is famous for allocating 20% to people's if, to people's personal projects, so that only 80% has to go to the, the cold face, so to speak, that they, they call it 120 time in Google, because in real life, you actually have to do your five day a week job before you really get the time to do your 20%. But in organizations that give themselves, that give their people time and space, all of a sudden that kind of daydreaming, and you know, daydreaming is another thing we associate with kids, right? Can lead to uh, breakthroughs in thinking that are incredibly important. So, you know, I, I want us to think about Albert Einstein, who took a job at the Bern Patent Office, partly so that he could be close to the kind of changing technologies of that day, but partly because it was actually relatively easy and it gave him time to sort of think about the big things that ultimately led to his theory of relativity. Or if we were to take a you know, giant company, um, Nestle, giant Swiss company, you don't tend to think of the Swiss as sort of inherently creative. They gave one of their engineers, a guy called Eric Fev, the time and space to experiment around coffee, even though they already had two giant franchises in coffee. And the thing that he came up with, Nespresso, actually cannibalized those two big existing businesses, right? And that, that space that he was given, he's actually a rocket scientist, right? Um, actually allowed him when he was in Rome with his wife to just notice this big queue outside one coffee shop called Santa, Santa uh, Estacio and led him to just out of curiosity to, to to wander in there and find out what they were doing differently that caused a queue around the block. Right. And, and again, 
how does a company like Nestle recognize that it's to their interest to give this brilliant young engineer the time to make discoveries rather than just the time to process his inbox? It's an interesting thing you bring up, Charles. This is why I felt that your book is so timely, because it seems right now there's so much of a focus on where employees should work, where we could be most effective, where we can be most productive, where we can ensure our culture as an organization is reinforced and is built upon. But there's not a lot of talk about time. I mean, other than the fact that we talk about time in the context of, yes, but if I could work from home, I save time from doing commuting and so forth. But there's not a lot of discussion, as you're pointing out, about how much time are we allocating for people to just think, to be curious, to look at what's going on around them and to conduct these kinds of experiments. And so how do we make sure in this current tug of war where we're trying to figure out the nature of work and what works most efficient and effective for our employees, how do we make sure we're not losing sight of the importance of time in the context of creating an environment where people can be curious to question and ponder and even daydream to imagine a better way to solve some of the problems we're facing in these uncertain times. Yeah. And, you know, it, it reminds me all the way back to, you know, Stephen Covey's book a long time ago, and he reminded us of a matrix that actually has older origins, which is a simple two by two that has on one side urgent and less urgent, and on the other side, more important and less important. In the world of email and text, we spend a huge amount of our time on what's urgent and not important, right? Mm -hmm. And how much of our time do we spend on less urgent, but really important? That's the realm of strategy and that's the realm of inspiration. So this brings me to the next imperfectionist mindset I wanna talk with you, Charles, and it's the mindset you call a current behavior. Now, before we talk about how to go about implementing this behavior to help us become better problem solvers, could you explain what exactly a current behavior is and its connection to problem solving? Yeah, so a current behavior is a kind of funny term, right? And what it means is what actually happens, not what you expected to happen or hope to happen. And when you look at the way we used to do strategy, we'd go and get and 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 find the data sets that had already been done on something. So if you're if you were a management consultant, that's what you did. And what we want to encourage people with this mindset is actually to think about creating their own data, creating fresh data, so that you're actually figuring out what's going on for real right now. And I'll give you an example. And, and well, so an, I mean, an, another way of thinking about this would be to, to call it experimentalism, right? So. Instead of accepting, and I'll, I'll, let me use an example from um, a heavy industry, because I think we, we often think about experimentation as something that's easy to do in light industries like the internet. You know, I'll put up interface A and interface B, and I'll see which one generates more traffic or more sales, right? But we assume that that's irrelevant. That kind of experimentalism is irrelevant in, invest, in, in industries that have heavy investments. But it just isn't true. So one of my favorite examples here is SpaceX. When SpaceX sends uh, objects into space, which NASA had been doing for a long time, what did they do differently from NASA? 
Well, NASA was spending sending three to four missions into space a year, and it was doing the su super engineered approach to it. And so the cost to send an object into space, a kilogram into space, stayed about the same for a long time. Well, SpaceX gets uh, started, and they start sending, do, doing 15, 20, even 30 missions a year. And as they're doing it, they're constantly trying to think of, hmm, I wonder if we can reuse this component. I wonder if we can 3D print this component. I wonder if we can bring in a material that was developed for an entirely different application rather than specially developed for NASA um, and bring it in. And what happened over time, of course, is um, they were able to, to bring down the cost of sending a kilogram into space by 95%. So from about $50,000 a kilogram to only a little more than $2,500 a kilogram, right? They made some errors and mistakes along the way, and that's what's inherent in this experimentalist or imperfectionist approach, including most spectacularly recently, what was called, what, what did they call it? An unplanned disassembly of one of their giant rockets. It broke apart soon after launching. But even ahead of time, they said that could happen. And they would learn a whole bunch because there were four or five different experiments that they were running with that, with that rocket. This is, this is the idea that's behind a current behavior, which is that willingness not only to create an experiment, but to have the experiment fail. And to understand that that failure in the experiment is not a failure in the overall mission. It's a gift. Now, you might not know this, Charles, but I come from a medical background. So this particular mindset resonated a lot with me with its focus on experimentation. But I know that's not necessarily the case for others listening to us right now. So what are some measures leaders can take to embrace this mindset? And how do they figure out how far to take this experimenting approach? Because you don't want to get caught running experiments just for the sake of doing them. Yeah. And you know what? I, I think that's a, a really good point. We do talk about that quite a bit in the book. So personally, I would I would never uh, launch a strategic program where I just relied on old data, especially data that was created by some you know, commercial research organization, because everybody's got the same subscription to that data. I'd always want to think, what's a fresh way of looking at this? And what's a fresh set of, set of experiments that I could do? Sometimes those are what's called natural experiments, where there's already been an A-B test in nature that you can take advantage of to get an insight into something. You know, a good example there would be different countries behaved around COVID-19 differently, and they got different outcomes. So you can have a natural experiment that would never be ethical to do um, as, a, as a planned experiment. But I, I, so I think, I think, again, this is a mindset where the leadership of a company can say, whenever, whenever we're doing strategy, whenever we're creating a new strategic initiative, we expect you to set up um, small, relatively reversible, relatively modest cost experiments that we can learn from. And instead of getting into that kind of A-B testing rut that you can get into, we're going to make decisions based on those first few experiments, right? Because you can get into uh, uh, you know forever experimentation, never actually press the button. Okay, Charles. So we've covered so far the mindset's a dragon eye, being ever curious. And now we looked at occurrent behavior. 
So let's now talk about the mindset of collective intelligence, because as I mentioned at the start of our discussion, this model of using these different mindsets to become better problem solvers during uncertain times allays one fear many of us have, and that is what are the long-term impacts of AI will have on our work and society at large. And there's some reassurance to be found here on that front. So how do we use collective intelligence to improve our problem-solving capacity and what does it reveal as a key limitation that AI can overcome? Yeah, so you know the general idea here is um, is the one that was expressed sort of beautifully by Bill Joy, who was one of the founders of Sun Microsystems, and in fact one of the parents of the Unix uh, operating system when he was at Berkeley before, which which has been sort of now called Joy's Law. And Joy's Law is the smartest people in the room probably aren't in your room. They probably work for somebody else. And what what Joy said is, how can I get them laboring in my garden? And that's the key insight behind how you capture collective intelligence. And for Bill Joy, that was captured via open source software, where there would be some collaborative projects and software that everyone would co-own, Unix language being a good example of that, once it was released by its, its original owner, which was the AT&T Corporation. And we'll, we agree to build that together. And then we often would switch to proprietary software for, if you will, the last mile. That is the specific customer application. Most people don't know it, but today the software that's beneath the operating system that's beneath your Mac or your PC has tons of pieces that were developed during that open source Unix phase of development. And open source is still a big part of computing today. That's the general idea. Now... There's a bunch of ways that we can do that that are different from open source, right? Which is um, one of my favorite ones is the idea of gamifying accessing other people's intelligence via using crowdsourcing platforms. So Kegel's one of those um, uh, famous crowdsourcing platforms now, and where you can put up a challenge to people and for and 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 for example a prize. Um, and then you can attract people who are often from very disparate worlds from you to develop technologies and approaches that you would ne- that you would never have the capabilities to do internally. Let me give you a concrete example there. The Nature Conservancy is a conservation organization. It's the biggest one in the world. They are very they're very interested in the question of bycatch of um, endangered fish species, particularly tuna, and. But and they have and they had an idea, which is having cameras on fishing boats at sea would help you uh, record when endangered fish were being captured. But they also had a sense that it would be much better if you could flag very quickly as fish were being caught and then release those fish that were endangered. But how do you do that? They didn't have anybody inside their organization that was an expert in computer vision or machine learning. And so they, with a $150,000 prize they put up on Kaggle, can you provide solutions? 3,000 different teams provided computer vision machine learning algorithms to spot fish. In this case, it was by the shapes of their tails, the shapes of their gill plates, and the shapes of their fins, which allowed for very accurate prediction of which fish were okay to keep and which fish weren't. And that's now being trialed in fishing fleets in Indonesia. I just love this example, right? An organization wasn't afraid to reach outside its own boundaries with a small amount of money, bring in 
the incredible creativity of the broader, um, in this case, machine learning community, right? And I think there's a generalizable idea here, which is some people have heard of AI swarms, and that's you know the interaction of people with different um, machine learning algorithms that can lead to much better prediction than any individual or any individual, uh, sorry, any individual AI. So they've tried this on things like predicting football results, soccer results, but it also turns out to be a very powerful idea for cancer diagnosis. Better than any doctor, better than any uh, uh, AI algorithm for diagnostics is, is a swarm where you have essentially competing algorithms and people. Cool idea. Charles, I love this example you just shared about how we could use crowdsourcing to address the challenges we face in the fishing industry, because I think you've just demonstrated how we can use the next mindset I want to talk to you about of becoming an imperfectionist, and that is the mindset of show and tell, where you point out that many times facts are not enough to motivate change, and that what we need is a narrative that compels people to not just accept what they're being told, but to take action based on what they know about the situation. So I've discussed storytelling here on the podcast in terms of improving how we communicate, and I've even employed it to help relay a key leadership insight in some of my Leadership Espresso Shot editions. But what are some approaches we could take here in terms of problem solving during uncertain times? Yeah, and I think, you know, the the, the kernel here that's most important, and you, you know, you spoke to it, which is facts are not enough especially in the world that we've been in in the last sort of half a dozen years where there's all this politics in facts. And the the importance of narrative is that it speaks not only to what's between our ears, but also what's in our chest. The intersection of facts and values is much more likely to cause people to be open to hearing a new approach, whether that's a strategic approach or some other kind of approach. And this gets talked about by, you know, by, by, by really smart folks who care about kind of experimental psychology as speaking with frames, as in frames, as opposed to just speaking in facts, right? There, there, the, the idea here was developed by a man called Stephen Haight, or Jonathan Haight, um, who studied how people take in information and when you can speak to values, you're much more likely to speak in a way that's compelling to people. Everybody cares about their kids. Some people believe in climate change and some people don't. But when you start the conversation by talking about the future of our children, people are much more likely to be open to hearing the story you're going to tell than when you start in an adversarial fact-based position. So there's one final mindset in your book you talk about, and it mirrors the title of your book as it's called the imperfectionism mindset. Now, I wanted to end our discussion here with this sixth and final mindset because I think it will not only help encapsulate everything we've discussed today, but I really appreciate the series of questions you offer to help us assess how well we're embracing being an imperfectionist. So could you walk us through this last mindset and how do we assess how well we're embracing this new approach of stepping into risk instead of trying to avoid it in favor of seeking certainty. Yeah, so this is the kind of one ring that binds them all. Uh, you know, the, the, the mindset that is both independent of and encompasses uh, the five other mindsets that we spoke about. And this is this idea 
once you've been curious and you've seen things through multiple perspectives and you've gathered new data and you've crowdsourced in new technologies and ideas, it's the actual act of stepping into that risk. And we like to en envisage that as kind of a staircase where your initial steps are ones that are relatively modest. And that means they don't cost too much and where they tend to be reversible, but also whether, you, whether they succeed or fail, where you build your capabilities and you build your confidence for later steps. Essentially, you learn more about the game that you're involved in. And, and again, when things are changing quickly, the game itself is often murky. In the world we're in now, we often don't even know what an industry boundary is because the person who disrupts your business is just as likely to come from outside as to be a, stand, a, a conventional competitor. Imperfectionism allows us to step forward into risk and to collect information that makes our, our, our further choices more sensible. Well, Charles, as I said at the start, I enjoyed your book, not only because of how it challenges us to change our outlook and approach during times of uncertainty, but especially how, as I was reading it, I could see both those companies who no doubt in a few years will become the next set of success stories because they're seeing this period of uncertainty as a time to experiment and, as you just said, step into risk, as well as those who will become the laggards who will struggle to catch up because they opted to try and go back to the way things were instead of trying to understand where they need to go next. So a wonderful read and an equally enjoyable and revealing conversation, Charles. So thanks for coming on my show to share these ideas and insights with my listeners. I loved every minute of it. It was terrific. And um, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about the book. If you'd like to learn more about Charles and his book, check out the show notes for this episode on our podcast page at tampanasir.com slash LBC. And if you're interested in learning more about my speaking work, please check out my speaking page on my website, where you can learn more about the topics I share in my keynotes and corporate training sessions, as well as what leaders in attendance have had to say about the insights and ideas I shared at these events. I'm Tavin Asir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.